You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Before we begin, I need to be honest about something. I lifted something this morning when I got here and sent my back into a fit of spasms. So I've been in a lot of pain all morning long. That's one of the reasons I asked Dave to do announcements. And I just want you to know this for a couple of reasons. Um, first, so that uh, I'm not asking you to be sympathetic or have sympathy for me or anything of that nature. I just I want you to know that in the event that you see me grimace or whine or start crying or lay down on the stage during the middle of the message, that you know what has caused that. And uh, and if uh, you should also know that you're not going to be the only one suffering through the sermon this morning. I'm going to be joining you with that in that. So just in the interest of full disclosure, I'm not going to be moving very far from where I'm standing right here until I mercifully step down. And if I just stop in the middle of a sentence and walk off the stage, then you know you know why. John chapter 17, we're going to read together verses 20 through 24. And before we do, let's open with a word of prayer. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for your word and you have given it to us so that we might know you and that we might know your purposes and your plans for us and for this world and for your church. We thank you for your church, that you have united us around the gospel and in the truth of your word. We pray that you would help us this morning in our study and understanding of your word, that we would be delighting in it and that you would incline our hearts in the truth to love and admire Jesus Christ, who has purchased everything for us through his death on the cross. We thank you for that and we pray your blessing upon this time in his name. Amen. Beginning in verse 20. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. The unity that is described in these verses, which we started looking at last week in verse 20, it is a unity that is it is so rich, it is so profound, it is transcendent, it is eternal, it is mysterious. It is something that far surpasses all of the satanic, counter, satanic counterfeits that we typically associate with unity, namely organizational unity, the idea that, that real unity is expressed in an organization when Christians get together and eliminate denominational barriers and eliminate any kind of doctrine or truth from the mix so that we can all get together and show one sort of outward veneer of unity. That's a satanic counterfeit. Uh, ecumenical unity is also a satanic counterfeit, the idea that we need to minimize doctrine and downplay it and sort of gather around the lowest common denominator of truth so that there is absolutely nothing that anybody would disagree with, and, and in that way we can all then be united. That is a satanic counterfeit. The real unity that Christians enjoy, the unity that is intended by our Lord in this passage, is a unity that is, it is eternal, it is infinite, it is transcendent, it is beyond any of those earthly, outwardly shallow expressions of unity, which we typically try and associate with unity and think that we have achieved when, when we get it. Uh, this is a rich unity. It's a spiritual unity. It's, it's a unity around the truth. Not a unity that is without truth. It is a unity that centers and focuses upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not an organization, an outward visible organization. 
The unity that we have as Christians really is birthed in and grounded in the God of truth. And we've been looking at that. We started looking at that unity last week when we looked at Jesus's prayer for the unity of his people in verse 20. He desired that all whom the Father had given to him, that is not just the 11 disciples, but all of those whom the Father had given to him, that would include us, all who have believed upon him as a result of their testimony, that all of us would be one. And so we had to ask the question, what type of unity is this? What does Jesus mean by oneness? So we looked at that prayer last week. Today we're going to look at the pattern for our unity, and we're going to look at the purpose of our unity, the pattern for it and the purpose of it. And the pattern for it is nothing less than the relationship that exists between the persons of the Trinity, the relationship in the triune God itself. And you'll notice that there is twice in the passage that I just read, and once previously, you may, may remember, back in verse 11, where Jesus mentions this similarity between the unity that we enjoy as Christians together and the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. So look at verse 11. I'm going to look, read all three of these, of these passages. Verse 11, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father... Keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. Now notice the correspondence between the oneness that he intends for his people and the oneness that he enjoyed with the Father. He wants all of his people to be one in some way analogous to the oneness that is enjoyed between the Father and the Son. Now look at verse 21. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity. So three times there, he alludes to something something about the nature of the Trinitarian relationship of the Father and the Son that is in some way analogous to the unity that is enjoyed by Christians. And so now we have to ask ourselves, what is it about the relationship of the Trinity that is a parallel or an analogy, um, well, it'd be better, better to say this, what is it about Christian unity that is analogous to the relationship between the members of the Trinity? Because Jesus three times says it. So it's not accidental. He is intentionally pointing to something that is true about the union, the oneness that the Father shares with the Son, that is also true about the oneness that He intends for all of His people. Those, the apostles and all through church history and us, and all of his people all over the globe, there is some parallel between the relationship in the Trinity and the relationship that we have. And so what is that parallel? Now, it would be wrong to say that the relationship of the Trinity is exactly like the relationship or the unity of Christians. It would be wrong to say that, there, that, that our unity, our oneness, is exactly like that of the Trinity because there is nothing like the oneness that exists in the persons of the Trinity. When God says, to whom will you liken me, He's not coming up with a create. He's not charging you or, or challenging you to come up with a creative analogy about his nature. The only answer to that is nothing. There is nothing that is like our God, and so there is nothing in this world that is exactly like the unity that exists between the Father and the Son. It is a mysterious unity. It is rich. We are told about it. It, it is described to us in some sense in in a, in a way as Christians. The unity that we enjoy as a people, as a church, and with other Christians is some experience of that kind of unity, but it's not exactly the same. Because in the persons of the Trinity, you have three separate and distinct persons, but you have one nature, one being, and one essence. So the Father is God, and He shares and has all of the fullness that is God. The Son is God, and He has all of the fullness that is God. And the Holy Spirit is God, and He has all of the fullness that is God. So though there is diversity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three separate and distinct, eternally existent, self-conscious persons, 
They're all one God, one essence and one nature. We can't experience that and we don't know what that is like because I am one person and one nature. And we do not share a oneness of nature. But there is something about the, the persons of the Trinity and their relationship to each other that is similar to what we enjoy as Christians and the unity that we enjoy as Christians. What is it? Let me give you a few ways in which the, these things are similar. And keep in mind, these are not exact. Uh, I would suggest that the, when we experience and enjoy unity as Christians together, we're getting glimpses, glimpses, and they're only glimpses of that profound and deep unity that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So here is how the, the unity of the Godhead is similar, or our unity as a church is similar to the unity of the Godhead. I need to be careful I don't get those mixed up. Because if I say the unity of the Godhead is similar to the unity that exists between us as Christians, that suggests that, that our unity really is the standard and theirs is a model of ours. So we always need to get that. I need to make sure that I keep that, that, that clear. It is our unity as a church and our unity as believers that is a model or a reflection of the unity that exists between the members of the Trinity. So the unity of the Godhead, let me give you, let me give you five of them. The unity of the Godhead is a unity of life. The unity of the Godhead is a unity of life. There is one life. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all share that same life. Now we have different lives, as it were. Uh, so our physical life, they are different and distinct. My life is different than your life. But the life of the, of the Godhead, it is a life that is shared equally and fully by all three persons of the Trinity. So the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they share one life, one nature, one essence, one livingness, one source of life. They are the source of life, and they share this fully and equally. And so it is with us in this sense that the eternal life that I have and the eternal life that you have, if you're a believer in Christ, it is the same life. We are partakers of the divine nature together. We enjoy the same eternal life. My eternal life is going to last just as long as your eternal life. The source for my eternal life is the same as the source for your eternal life. We get it the same way through repentance and faith by the grace of God. And in that way, we do share oneness of life. And so all of the, all of the livingness or life that is enjoyed by the, by the church, by his people, is one in the sense that we all get our eternal life from the same source, and it is the same eternal life. The eternal life that is in you is exactly identical to the eternal life that is in me. It is one and the same life, and we share this in common. Second, the life of the Trinity is a, the unity of the Trinity is a unity of indwelling. Of indwelling. The Father is in the Son, and the Son is in the Father. And the Father and the Son are in His people, and His people are in the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit is in His people. There is a, a mutual indwelling between the persons of the Trinity that we have already read about many times in this upper room discourse. Jesus has said on numerous occasions, the Spirit will be in you and He will be in you forever. And this this work of eternal life that God has done on behalf of His people is to result in the, the triune God dwelling within His church and His church dwelling within the triune God. There is a mutual indwelling that exists between the people of God and the, the three persons of the Holy Trinity. So it is a oneness of indwelling. Um, Ephesians 2 says that we are together as living stones being built together as a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the Spirit of God dwells in all of His people individually and the Spirit of God dwells in His people, the church, corporately. When we get together in expressions like this, and when we get together with other believers, there is a sense in which we are all sharing this indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that is analogous. The indwelling or the mutual indwelling of the persons of the Trinity, being one in each other, though separate and distinct, is the same with the Spirit dwelling in us, even though we are separate and distinct. Third, the unity of the Trinity is an unseen and mysterious unity. It is an unseen and mysterious unity. How do you describe the unity that exists between the Father and the Son? Now, there is a sense in which you, you cannot put words to that. 
It is a oneness. It is a sameness of essence. But it is a separateness and distinctiveness between the persons. So there's a sense in which these persons of the Trinity are entirely separate and distinct from each other. And there is a sense in which they are completely one. So that Jesus could say, I and the Father are one. That is a profound and mysterious unity. And there is no way that we can describe it. There's no way that we can illustrate it. There's no analogy that we can put to it. There's no perfect picture of it in this world. It is a mysterious and profound unity that exists that all we can do is is get glimpses of it and tap into it, as it were, in some way experience it a little bit in the unity that exists between us. And so it is with us. How is it? That, how would you describe the unity that you have with Christians whom you have never met on the face of this planet? That is mysterious, is it not? Isn't that weird, as I shared last week, to step onto a plane and sit down next to a brother in Christ and share two hours of fellowship, having never met each other before, and you've never seen each other since, and yet you enjoy perfect fellowship and oneness, in a sense, with somebody that you've never met? How do you describe that to somebody who has never experienced it and who doesn't know it, who's not even a Christian? Can you, can you give an analogy to that? Can you, can you give an illustration of it? No, you can't. It's a mysterious union that we only experience at times. And it's a mysterious oneness that we just, we hope we can, we can strive for and preserve and love and experience, but there's no way of describing it. It's mysterious. How do you describe the unity that exists that you have with somebody on the other side of the planet whom you have never met, you will never met, and yet you are one with them even as you sit here now? You are one with them. You're just as much in unity and oneness with them as you are with the believer who is sitting right next to you. How do you describe such a mysterious unity? How do you describe a oneness that you have with somebody who died a thousand years ago? How do you describe the oneness that you have with Martin Luther, with the apostles? And if the Lord should tarry and we stay here for another 500 years and you die, how do you describe that unity that you have, that oneness that you have with Christians who have even yet to be born? There's just no words to put to that, is there? And so it is with the Trinity and so it is with, with the church. It's a mysterious union, unity and oneness that we just... We can only get glimpses of. We can't actually accurately and fully describe it or illustrate it. And fifth, or fourth, it is a unity of truth. It's a unity of truth. God is a God of truth and He has united His people in the truth and by the truth. He saves us by the truth. He delivers us by the truth. He sanctifies us by the truth. He makes us one by the truth. It is the truth and the truth only, which is at the heart and center and soul of all of the unity that we experience and that we share together. True unity is a unity around the truth. That's why I suggested last week that any unity that makes little of the truth or that dishonors the truth, dishonors the God of truth. It's impossible to eliminate truth from the equation and to say, well, we have unity, but not around that truth. That's a, that's a false unity. It's a fiction. It's impossible to have that kind of unity because you end up being unified with people who don't love the truth and never been saved by the truth and they're still children of darkness. And so the unity that exists in the Godhead is a unity of the truth. God is a God of truth. He loves the truth. He speaks the truth. And all that he ever does is for and by the truth because he's a God of truth. And so any unity that is going to model that unity between the persons of the Godhead must itself be centered around and focused on the truth. And fifth, this is fifth. I had fourth last time. This unity is a unity of mission. It's a unity of mission. My mission, if we are centered on the gospel, my mission is the same as your mission. And that is to proclaim the gospel to the glory of God to all the nations. That should be our goal. That should be why we gather here together to equip ourselves to proclaim the gospel for the glory of God to all the nations. And so the unity that we share, this, this pattern of unity that is modeled after the Trinity, that unity is a unity of mission. So in the persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all want the same thing. They're all after the same thing. They all do all that they do for the same thing. 
And so it is in God's church and with us. That which is the center of our unity is the gospel itself. So that we do all that we do for the sake of the gospel. And what is it that unifies true Christians? It's the gospel. Without the gospel, there is no unity. So the unity that we have is centered around the gospel. And without the gospel, that unity does not exist. Whatever forms the basis for quote-unquote Christian unity that is not the truth of the gospel, there's no unity there. You might call it unity. You might feel good about yourself by linking arms or praying with people in the public square around a flagpole, but it's not true Christian unity because the gospel is not the center of it. Paul describes this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so whether I come and see you or remain absent, I would hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What's at the center of the oneness of spirit and oneness of mind? It is the striving together for the faith of the gospel. That is the basis, foundation, and goal of all true Christian unity. So it is a unity of mission. Just as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit do all that they do together, so the church, the true Christian, does all that he does for the same purpose as every other true Christian. What unites us is the gospel. Now this, the fact that Jesus prays for this and that he prays for this three times in this prayer and that he spends so much time in verses 20 through 24 describing this unity and praying for this unity that we all may be one, it shows us how important this unity is to God. It's very important to God. That is why we are commanded to strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is why we are to mark those who cause divisions among us, contrary to the teaching that we have received. That is why we are told by Paul in Philippians chapter 2 to be of one mind and one spirit, intent and focused on one thing. This unity of the gospel is to characterize all that we do so that we lay aside all of our personal preferences and come together with this aim in mind. The gospel is at the center of all of this. And the gospel is what unites us and the gospel is what creates and maintains true Christian unity. So it is important to God that we be unified and that we have this unity with, which has the core essentials of the gospel at its core. That's the unity that we are to have. That's the unity that God wants us to have. Because true Christian unity is a demonstration of the nature and the character of God. Now, don't miss this. You and I see it as a sweet thing when Christians enjoy and express unity together. Do we not? You're in an environment where there, there is unity. There's not strife. There's not disharmony and division. And we enjoy, we enjoy here in this fellowship such an experience. We enjoy that. There's no church divisions. There's no strife. The people on this side are not getting ready to leave because they hate all the people on this side. That's, that's not the case here. And it hasn't been the case here for over two decades, three decades. We just don't have that. And so we enjoy that and, and it is sweet to us. It is a fellowship that is sweet. It is an experience that is sweet. Do you know why it is sweet? It is sweet not just because we get to live a life that is harmonious. It is sweet because in experiencing that, we are experiencing something that is true of the eternal Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are enjoying a glimpse of that. The unity of the church around the truth is a reflection of the unity of the persons of the Trinity around and for the truth. And so when we experience unity and express that and enjoy it, we are experiencing and enjoying something that is characteristic of God himself, and that is why we delight in it. That is why Christians delight in unity. Because in that, we are tasting something of the Godhead. Just a small glimpse of it, but we're tasting something of the Godhead. So what is the pattern for our unity? Well, our unity is patterned after the relationship between the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what is the purpose of our unity? What is the purpose of it? 
There is something that is communicated to the world by Christian unity. And you want to, I want you to see it in the text. Verse 21, which we stopped in the middle of verse 21 last week. Jesus said that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Notice the mutual indwelling there that characterizes the, the unity. The same thing indwells us all. And just as the Father and the Son are in each other, in a sense, there is a, a, a mutual indwelling Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, verses 22 and 23 are a, almost a phrase-by-phrase phrase repetition of the content and ideas that are in verse 21. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So there are two purposes to Christian unity, two things that the world notices when the church is one. And when the church is united around the gospel, number one, the world sees and believes and comes to understand that the father has sent the son that you have sent me. Verse 21 is repeated at the end of verse 23 and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. That's the end of verse 23. So what does the church see when sorry, what does the world see when the church is united around the gospel, the essentials of the gospel? The world sees that the father has sent the son into the world and the world sees that the Father has loved His people even as He loved His Son. Those are the two things that are demonstrated to the world by the unity of the church. But what does Jesus mean when He says at the beginning of verse 22, the glory which you have given Me, I have given to them. What is that glory? And I will tell you this, there is no unity of opinion on the subject of what that glory is. I read seven different options that have been suggested through church history as to what glory Jesus is describing there. I'm going to give you all seven of them in the order of what I think they are I'm going to end with what I think is most likely. Verse 22 tells us that the Father has given to the Son a glory and that the Son has then turned around and given that glory, that same glory, to His people. What is that glory? Here are the seven things that have been suggested. Number one, that Jesus is here describing the glory of communion. And that sounds far-fetched, doesn't it? You think that takes... You've got to get a shoehorn and a lot of Crisco to get that idea into this text. And that is exactly, that is absolutely true. That sounds like somebody who is trying to get communion into this text. Communion is glorious. But I do not believe that Jesus is here describing communion. And make it, make that synonymous in the text for just a second. Read verse 22. The communion which you have given to me, I have given to them. And he did give to them the ordinance of communion, right? And the Father, I guess, in some sense might have passed that on to the Son. But does that really sound like the glory that he would be describing there? I don't think so. Second, some have suggested that this is the power to work miracles. The power to work miracles. The glory of the power to work miracles. What the Father had given to the Son, the power to work miracles, the Son has now given to them. But to whom did the Son give miracle-working ability? To all his people? To all whom the Father had given to him? To everyone who would believe upon him through the testimony of the apostles? Or just to those twelve men? Just to those apostles? Really, it was just to those 12 men, those apostles, including Paul, excluding Judas, just to those 12 men, he had given them that glory and those closely associated with their ministry. But as you certainly cannot say that he has given the miracle working power to all of you, has he? If he has, then you cost my wife a whole lot of time last night because she could have been sleeping. Instead, she was up making food for today's potluck. And if you had a miracle working ability, you could just take a slice of ham and a bun and feed all of us. But he has not given that power to all of us. He's only given that power to some of his people, very narrowly defined. So it seems odd that Jesus would here be describing a glory that had only been given to 12 when he is, in fact, talking about something that unites all people that the Father has given to him, all who are his who had believed upon him. 
Third, it has been suggested that the, this glory is describing Christ's power and authority and his influence. And again, I would suggest to you that that would only pertain to the apostles and not to all of his people. Whatever it is, this glory is, it is something that the Father has given to the Son, that the Son has given to all who have believed upon him, not this limited group of apostles. Fourth, some have said that this is describing a unity of mind and heart. That would kind of fit the context. Uh, there is a, a certain glory in a oneness of mind and a oneness of heart that we enjoy as God's people, but I don't think that that really fits all of the context. Fourth, fifth, whichever one I'm on, the glory of the image of Christ in which we are renewed. Some have suggested that it describes the glory of the image of Christ in which we are renewed. Now, now we've crossed the line from what I think is completely, completely junk ideas to something that has somewhat of some validity to it. Second Corinthians 3.18 says, We are all with an unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. So it may be that by glory we're talking about the image of Christ into which Jesus brings all of his people. That oneness of being conformed to the image of his Son. That certain type of unity. That might be it. That might be the glory. More likely than that, number six, that this would refer to the Holy Spirit who is called the Spirit of Glory in 1 Peter chapter 4. Now that would kind of even fit the context even more since we are talking in Trinitarian terms, are we not? And since the Holy Spirit has been in view for this entire, uh, this entire discourse, Jesus has called the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Truth, and He has said that what that which sanctifies us and makes us one is the truth, and so it might be that Jesus is here describing a oneness that we have as a result of the indwelling Spirit of Glory. And there is a sense in which the Father had given the Holy Spirit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is a sense also in which the Lord Jesus Christ gave to all of his people the Holy Spirit. And that indwelling spirit is one of the things that unites all of us. So that kind of fits the context. But number seven is what I think Jesus is describing here. And it is actually more straightforward and simple than all of those other things that I've suggested to you already. And that is that what is being described here is the glory of eternity with him. And that most certainly fits the context. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory. So I think in verse 22, he is describing that glory which he described in verse 5 when he said that he had enjoyed a glory with the Father before the world ever was. That glory which the Father had given to him, he has prayed that he would be restored to that glory and that that glory would be restored to him. And now he is praying for all of his people that all of us in our oneness might receive and enjoy that glory. And so he is saying in verse 22, the glory, that eternal heavenly glory that the Father has given to him, he has turned around and vouchsafed that to all of his people. That is the glory that we enjoy. So we are one, not just in mind and not just in truth and not just around the gospel, but there is a unity that we have in glory. How many of his people, whom the Father has given to him to save, how many of them will end up in eternal glory? 90%? 99%? Or all of them. All of them. And this is indeed when you and I will experience the fullness of this oneness, of this unity. When we stand with Him in glory, we will be one and united in the glory of eternity. So there are two things that are communicated by the glory or by the unity that the church experiences and expresses. Number one, you see it at the end of verse 21, that the world may believe that you sent me. The second one is at the end of verse 23 that the world may believe and know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. So there are two things that unity in the church communicates to the world, that the Father has sent the Son and that the Father has loved his people. Those are the two things that the world sees. 
Now, the world doesn't get saved because they see the unity of the church. But it is a testimony to an unbelieving world. When the church is unified, it is a testimony to the unbelieving world that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior for sinners and that the Father has loved His people. So let's take both of those together and, and contrast that unity and what it communicates to the world with false unity and what that communicates to the world. When something other than the gospel and other than the truth is the basis or foundation of our unity, it communicates that other things are more important than the truth. So if, the, if what we are united around is that all people who name the name of Jesus get together and let's all elect a candidate that we can unite around, or let's all affect some sort of cultural or social change, or let's all get a legislation passed, and it doesn't matter if you're Roman Catholic or Mormon or Evangelical Christian or mainline apostate, it doesn't matter, we're just all going to get together because we share some value other than the gospel around which we can unite. What does that communicate to the world? It communicates to the world that we think little of the truth, but we value all of these other things that really are the basis of our supposed unity. When in fact, it's not unity at all. But when the gospel is at the center of the church's unity, and the gospel is all, uh, the church is all of one mind and heart regarding the foundations and the fundamentals of the gospel and the message of the gospel, then what is the church's message that it speaks with an, uh, a oneness of voice to the world. What is the message? The message is, in part, that God has sent His Son into the world to save sinners. And that God loved His people enough to send His Son into the world to save sinners. And the world sees that because that's all that the church talks about. When the church is united around the gospel, what does the world hear? God loved His people enough to send His Son into the world. And that's what Jesus says at the end of verse 21, at the end of verse 23, that you may be, they may believe and know that you sent me and that you love them even as you have loved me. And the world sees that in the unity of the church when that unity is expressed in a right way. Let me give you two closing thoughts on the subject of unity. First, the unity that we, the unity that is true of God's church, of Christ's church and his people is a unity that cannot be fully experienced or known or seen in this life. It cannot be. You are setting yourself up for disappointment if you think that you are going to see ever in your lifetime this unity fully expressed in all of its glory and its fullness in this world. It cannot be because of all of the inherent limitations on this unity and because of what because of the nature of this unity. That This is what leads people to think that if we can just get rid of denominational differences and all of the things that might divide us and all the little quirky things that you believe that, that I don't and all the quirky things that I believe that you don't, if we could just ignore all of those and all of us get rid of it, we could have true unity. We can never have true unity. People drive after that because it's a wrong view of unity. The true unity, the biblical unity that you and I enjoy, the unity described in this passage, is not a unity that we can experience or know in its fullness or see in its fullness in this lifetime. Why is that? Well, quite frankly, because you are united in millions of people that you will never meet. In the history of humanity, you and I represent one tiny little sliver out of a very long timeline. And all of the rest of that consists of people for whom Christ has died and who are, who are saved, who have been saved and have gone on and who yet will be saved. And the majority, the vast majority of people that you are one with you will never meet in this world. And because of the nature of the unity itself, that it is not a unity that you can see, 
It's not a unity that you can experience fully here because you can't meet those people. You can't be with those people. So when will we know that unity in its fullness? In heaven. When we stand as one bride, faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, and we stand there before God in the glory that he has given to us, then we will look around and we will see all of those whom the Father has given to the Son, all of those for whom Christ has prayed in this prayer, all of us one, one in glory, of the same mind, of the same doctrine, the same salvation, the same indwelling Holy Spirit, and we will see every last one of them saved, sanctified, and redeemed and secured everlastingly. Then we will see, and then we will experience, and then we will know that unity in its fullness. But we never can hear. We never can hear. And the minute we strive to, to see that and desire to see that, we create something that cannot ever express real biblical Christian unity. So we've talked about the unity, talked about what it is. Now the second closing thought. You said, Jim, I was hoping this would be much shorter, as much pain as you were in. The second closing thought is what do we do to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? What we do as Christians is we understand what it is that has united us, and we fixate on that very thing. And not that we make it, not that we minimize it and try to bring it down to its its lowest common denominator, or that we try and, and make it something that is so small that we can all agree on it. There is a tremendous body of doctrine upon which the true church agrees. There is a tremendous body of doctrine upon which all believers can unite and do unite. So we identify what that is. It is the essentials of the faith. It is the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine concerning Scripture, the doctrine concerning the Gospel. These are the things that create unity. These are the basis of unity. These are the things around which the true church unites. So we identify what that is, and we pursue hard after that. It doesn't mean that we forget there are other differences. It doesn't mean that we forget that there are denominational distinctions or that there are doctrines that are believed by some that are not believed by others. And it's not that we don't stop talking about them or stop arguing about them. Sometimes we like doing that, and all of that is fine. But it does mean that we recognize what it is that unites us, and we refuse to let anything else come in and divide us on the level of that which unites us. And so we pursue hard the one another's. We love one another. We care for one another. We show compassion for one another. We serve one another. We consider other people as more important than ourselves. We look out for not only our own interests, but also for the interests of others. We have the mind in us, which is also in Christ Jesus. We keep the gospel at the center of that. We make that the center of our proclamation and our ministry to the world. And when we do that, there is nothing that can threaten or disunite the church. We simply do what Scripture says that we are to do because... God has made us one. Then we experience all the unity that can be experienced in this world. You'll notice that Jesus never told these disciples to seek unity with Judas. Judas was gone. He couldn't even talk about unity until Judas was gone. And yet the church today seems to be seeking after any and every Judas it can find in order to link arms with him and show forth some thin veneer and call it unity. We can't be united with the Judases of the world, the fake believers, the false teachers, the people who pervert and distort the gospel. We can't unite with them because there is nothing that unites us. What unites us is the gospel. May it never be said of the true church, and may it never be said of our church, that we link arms with the Judases of this world. But may it also be said that we do, in every way, enjoy and rejoice in and preserve the unity of the Spirit that God has made for us in the gospel, in the bond of peace. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we are thankful to you that you have made your church what it is, that you have brought us together through the gospel and made us one because of what Christ has done. It is all your work, and this is a unity that we enjoy, and and, uh, we experience it because of what you have done, and it is a small glimpse of what we will experience when we get to eternity. Thank you for these glimpses of glory that we get in your word. 
and in our life and fellowship with one another, may we strive to guard that unity that you have created and bought for us in the gospel, around the gospel, for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.